Amen. Well, good morning, church. It is a good day to be together. Uh, starting tomorrow, we're going to have a bunch of uh, kiddos running around, which means we're going to have a lot of volunteers running around whom we are praying for your energy. Something we found out a while ago when we uh, became parents was we thought we could tire our children out. Do you know what? Do you remember those cars back in the day that when you pulled them back, it actually wound them up? And when you let go, they went crazy. I think sometimes that's what parenting's like. When you're trying to tire your kid out, you're just pulling them back. You know what I mean? It's just getting them ready. And so we're going to be praying for stamina for everybody uh, this week as we get rolling. Um, we're going to be talking about what we believe about the Bible today as a church. <clears throat> our, kind of, our kind of foundational uh, passage we'll use to spring from is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. And what we're going to do is we're going to find ourselves there um, in one of the most important passages in Jewish history. And in, in one that would have been not only repeated and recorded in Scripture by Christ, but he would have known. Uh, as every Jewish uh, boy and girl would have. It became a prayer for them. And so Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 15 is where we're going to hang out today um, as we talk about what we believe about the Bible. But here's what I want you to do. Um, on your uh, seat or one around you, there's a, there's a piece of paper with it, but there's a statement also we'll put up here on the screen um, that I would like to read together about what we believe. And so, yeah, good, you can see that really well. If you can read that with me, this is what we believe about the Bible. Let's read it together. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It is written by men of God, preserved by the Spirit of God, embraced and loved by the people of God, and pointing to the Son of God. All right? If anyone says, what do you believe about the Bible? That's what we believe about the Bible. And, and we, we have um, statements that kind of unpack that even further and scriptural support for it. But it's those simple statements. The, the Bible is an inspired word of God, written by the men of God, preserved by the Spirit of God, embraced by the people of God, and pointing to the Son of God. That, that's what we're going to walk through the day. And, and we are are going to do this. I could probably be here till tomorrow and not get through enough background for this, um, but some of you have a VBS meeting at four, I've already been told, so we have to be done by four today, all right? So as we walk through through the Word, um, just a few things to me. Um, if, if you don't know, starting this year, when a child enters first grade, we're going to start giving them a Bible as a part of our church service. What we already do is when our seniors leave, we give them a Bible uh, when they're leaving. And someone says, well, how many Bibles is, is enough Bibles or too many Bibles? And um, that's the wrong question to ask a preacher. But... I know the Bible I needed in first grade was different than the Bible I needed as a freshman in college. Amen? Note to self, if you don't believe, if you are a King James Bible lover, God bless you. Do not give that to someone who just learned how to read. Amen? Man, my daughter and I had the conversation about plowshares this morning. Ask a five-year-old what a plowshare is. You follow me? Like, we, we got to make sure it's appropriate. But I brought this with me today. Uh, this is... They're all, all the Bibles I have are my Bible, but this is my Bible. Um, this is the first Bible that I ever purchased for myself. Um, when I was about to go off to college, I was a senior in high school, um, I wanted a Bible I could take with me. And the way that you ordered Bibles back then 
was through paper mail-in. Y'all remember this stuff? It was like a paper catalog and you went through and you decided, you know, what kind of Bible, how many, you know, does it have tabs or not have tabs? Mine, y'all, I'm not ashamed of cheating. Get a Bible with tabs if you want it. Get you there quicker. Uh, it's not useful for Bible drill, but everywhere else in life it works. Um, I, my Bible was, was a gray leather at the time, uh, no reason for that, um, but I wanted a study Bible that I could really walk through, and this is the translation that, um, that the people that I love the most used. It's New American Standard Bible. It's still, I still love it uh, today. Um, but, I, but I remember filling it out, um, writing a check, and mailing it in, off. And I remember getting it uh, in the box that it came in back in the mail. Uh, and then from the time I was 17, that was 30, uh, almost 30 years ago, not yet, 29 years ago. Um, I've used it ever since. Uh, about 12, 14 years ago, um, the Bible was incomplete, not because I tried to change it, but because uh, Exodus through um, part of Joshua had decided to find a new location and so I had to look and keep my Bible together I don't know if any of your Bibles are that way and so uh, my wife and kiddos found someone who would sew it back together and put put new binding on it so I could use it still so um, if you ask me to go grab my Bible or what Bible I study from it is this one that has been waterlogged and has really strange things from a 17 year old written in here it's still my Bible um and I'll tell you this, this is my preaching Bible. It, I don't consider it my Bible because one day it'll get so worn out I have to replace it. But this one, not, not as much. But I remember thinking, I do not want to leave home without my Bible. Um, I, I've got my dad's Bible since he died and, and I would look at it at home and I, I, I had a ton of different Bibles, but I just, I wanted my Bible before I went off. Um, because I knew how important it would be for me to have something that I could keep connected with that I valued enough to draw near to the Lord with. And y'all, in 1990, whew, 1993, I ordered it to spend $70 on anything was a fortune. And there was no way I was going to let this, the most expensive thing I owned, no joke. Um, back then and so we're going to be talking not about why this is important to me but why this is important to the Lord and therefore it's important to us and so a few things I want to walk you through um, I, I want to get some data out of the way some of you are like me your data about the Bible and so I, there's some myths going on out there there's some misunderstandings about the Bible I, I want to walk you through and if you're a note taker you can kind of write this down um, a little Bible history um, if you wasted money and saw the Da Vinci Code just so that you know Constantine um, he did not put the Bible together um, all, all the Emperor Constantine did in, in history was he was nice to Christians, nicer than other emperors, and he ordered 50 copies of the Bibles written. Um, that was his contribution to it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, actually, the Bible, the New Testament, I would say, that we kind of have in our hands was kind of agreed upon 60 years later as we would look at it, if you wanted to know it in the formalness of it is. And so that kind of begs the question, does the Bible that we have, did it, did it not come together until 400 years 
after Christ was born, right? That would be a very short period of time. It's now the year 2000 and something or another, right? So 1,600 um, years ago, that's not a very long time. Is that really when our Bible came into being? Absolutely not. That's just really, really when they started using these verses and numbers in the way that they did. Um, a few things I want you uh, to know is this. When we say the Bible uh, is our canon of Scripture, the word canon doesn't mean like a canon you shoot with. It means a standard or a measurement. So in other words, every book, every letter in our Bible had to meet a standard to get in. Um, all of the hidden books of the Bible that you read about or hear about on the uh, History Channel or the Lost Gospels, none of them have been lost. They were never considered Scripture to begin with uh, when they were first written, and they're still not considered Scripture today. And just because someone wrote the word gospel in front of someone else's name doesn't make it biblical. Amen? Are you following me with that? So, so in that picture, let me talk about the Old Testament, uh, how we got the Old Testament. The Old Testament that you and I use today, okay, the Old Testament that we use today are the exact same books that were used by Jesus Christ. They, they are the exact same letters. They are the exact same historical documents that, that Jesus used. Uh, in fact, here's something neat about the Old Testament. From Genesis to Malachi, every book that we use in the Old Testament was completed by the time Ezra and Nehemiah were, were leaving this earth and died. So there is no book in our Old Testament that wasn't completed during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'm talking about the biblical uh, men in Scripture who came back from uh, captivity, right? So all of those scriptures were, were in their time. They were all completed by then. They were all then being, starting to be used by then. And, and so therefore, that's what it was. In fact, when, when we talk about books uh, of, of conglomerations or, or gatherings of books like the Apocrypha, which is 14 uh, books that you'll find in some Bibles, um, those books were all written after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they were considered great writings, but not inspired or scriptural at the time of Jesus Christ when he walked on the face of the earth. So, so Jesus knew about those books, and, and you'll see in the New Testament some references to some places. And just like great books of today, y'all know my favorite book is The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a great book that uses a ton of scripture, and I reference it all the time, but it's not the inspired word of God in the same way. There are some, some great sermons and some other, some other things I'll look to. There's, there's awesome references that are great works that are not inspired. And so that was how Jesus and the, and the time of the Jews of the people would have seen the books that you and I have in our Bible and then the extra books. And so we want to be careful as we walk through the Bible not to misunderstand or walk away from how did it get in, how did it not get in? Well, that's worthless, this isn't worthless. Listen, if, if Jesus thought that was something that was a, a decent writing, then I, that's not a bad thing. But there's a difference between a good writing and inspired word of God, amen? Right? It's good advice when your wife says, hey, honey, come taste this, to come and taste it. Amen? Is that the inspired word of God? No. As scary as your bride will be when you ignore her, not the same as the God of all creation. Amen? You, you kind of follow that? So the Old Testament that we have, it was all completed by the time of Ezra and Nehemiah who, who brought back the people of God from captivity. God used them. So, so number one, 
That's a little bit about the Old Testament. Uh, a little bit about, about the New Testament. It's kind of a different story. I'm going to walk you through it a little bit more. We've got some great things that come to that. Um, the New Testament was not in use at the time Jesus was born. Why? Because he started it all. Amen? You follow me? So the New Testament's not of the Old as the, as the Old Testament. Um, here's what I want you to know. Um, all the New Testament books have to have been written by an apostle or in a companion of an apostle. Like, no matter how good it was, if it wasn't by an apostle or a companion of an apostle, it didn't get in. It didn't mean it was bad, um, but it just didn't get in. All right? All of the books of the New Testament were written between 50 and 100 A.D. Now, if you think about that, Jesus, when he died at 33, died around 30 A.D. So this means within 20 years of, of Christ dying and rising again to 100 A.D., 70 years. Now, now this is really important, right? Because all of these books, if you write something about, your, you, about me or about a, a worldwide event, 20 years from now if you say hey back in 2020 there was no virus it was a great sunny year the average temperature was 60 and life was good if you write that 20 years from now will there be someone around you to say bull absolutely there will be it's it'll be easily clarified if if i were to say if you were to say i was at first baptist church on june 12 2022 and pastor david made a speaker levitate if you wrote that about me 20 years from now would there be someone around to say that didn't happen absolutely so the proximity to when scripture was written to when the actual events happened is an amazingly important fact so all the scriptures were written within that time frame a lot of these other books were that were are discovered were written hundreds of years after they supposedly happened and so they're they're thrown out because they're they're not um, able to be written by an apostle and right there um, here's a, a great thing. Um, the, the earliest copies, like the earliest print that we have of the New Testament um, that we have a, a piece of paper of is from um, 117 A.D. Um, is, is the, the earliest copy as print we have. Um, we have over 5,600 copies that were between 30 and 150 years of the original letter being written in the New Testament. So there are, there are copies of Scripture in the New Testament that were written between 30 and 150 years of the original. And, and so just so you want to know how trustworthy is that, um, if you've ever listened or read Aristotle, uh, no one walks around saying Aristotle didn't say that. Um, the best copies of what we have of what Aristotle said uh, in any of his works was 1,200 years from when he actually said it or wrote it. So, so I want you to look at that's 12, and there's only a thousand of those compared to 5,600 plus. 30 to 150 years, and Aristotle, who we just, we know he said these things, and no one gives you a hard time about it. 1,200 years and a thousand copies. Um, one of the most uh, incredible uh, pieces of literature, Homer's Iliad, is one of the, the most recordable and verifiable pieces of literature in history. Um, the, it's the closest after the Bible to its origin we have about 1700 copies that are dated 400 years from the original and th that's considered like solid gold 
1,700 copies of the Iliad, 400 years from when it originally happened. It's like solid gold verifiable. And what we have in the New Testament of the Scripture is between 30 and 150 years and 5,600 copies. Church, the beauty of that points to one of the things we'll get to is that the Spirit of the living God has preserved His Word in a way that men have been unable to copy. So, so that's the history of it today. So now let's get to the good stuff. Are you okay with me? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, we're going to be chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. Um, for time's sake, I was going to read it all together at the beginning. Let's break it up just a little bit uh, up in the booth. Let's just start off with chapter 6, verse 1. All right, chapter 6, verse 1. <clears throat> the Bible says this. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, right? So just kind of pause right there. If you don't know the context of this, the, uh, Moses is kind of given final word. He won't make it into the land, um, but he's kind of given the word about what's going on is he, here's what you've got to know as you prepare to go in the land. First of all, the Lord God commanded this, right? The very first start of chapter six, verse one, this is the commandment that the Lord God commanded me. You see, when we, when we look at this big picture of Deuteronomy chapter 16, it starts off with Moses saying, what I am telling you is given by the Lord God himself. And, and that's why that first statement we look at, the word of God is inspired by God, right? We believe with all that we are that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Well, what does inspired mean? It means given, it means passed along to us. God commanded it. God said it. We do it. If you look in scripture about how many times the Lord commanded or the variation of the word God said, just in the Old Testament, the number of variations of, of it being God said or God commanded is over 3,000 times. See, the Bible be the inspired word of God means that the, the Lord doesn't need our help in defending it because over and over and over, he's saying, this is from me. I am telling you this, that record this. Let the people know this isn't just pastoral advice. Let the people know this isn't just good general wisdom. Let them know the Lord said this. Now, this is really important. And, and I'll put it in context a little bit. Um, have you ever been around people that name drop? Have you, ever been around, you know who the worst name droppers in the world are? Children, right? Let me ask you, if you're a parent, and have you ever heard this? Dad said, hmm, if he says that to you, mom, what do you do? Hmm, it's a bad day. Have you ever made the mistake of leaving one child in charge of the other at home? Yeah, it's good. You should do it. It's pretty incredible. But the number of times that the child you leave in charge will reference the one who gave them the word, mom said, you can't go outside. Dad said, you didn't touch that. If you touch that, guess what I'm doing? I'm what? I'm telling. Whew, that's a threat. Right? Kids, they name drop all the time. Mom said it was okay if it was okay with you. Y'all. 
listen to me. Here's the thing about name dropping. You can only name drop if the authority that can be referenced will verify it, right? That's the key. We name drop when the authority, if you name drop and someone goes to verify it, now this isn't a child thing, this is a teenage thing. This would have never happened in my house, but if it happened somewhere in the world, if a child said, mom said to come ask you, and then I go check with mom and say, hey, did you say this was okay if they would come and ask me? And mom says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Who's having a bad day? Exactly, exactly. You see, because you and I have the ability to verify the, the source, and when that comes back, if you name drop and it is untrue, it's a bad day. Here's what God says. If a prophet name drops in old, the Old Testament, and he says, God said this is what's going to happen, and it doesn't happen, and I don't verify it, here's what you should do. Kill him. That's pretty strong name dropping, right? I mean, if we were to say that to our ch children, if you name drop at home, like, they're like, what do I do with that? At the end of the day, Scripture over and over and over says, this is what the Lord says, this is what the Lord says, this is what the Spirit said. I have commanded you. Church, the Bible being inspired by God is testified in itself over and over and over. Second Timothy says it this way in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every work. You may have read that passage a thousand times, but it is an audacious statement. I mean, I, I really want you to, to think about this. Do you have the ability to say what comes out of my mouth is profitable in teaching, in correcting, in reproofing, in training in righteousness that you may be equipped for everything in life? There is no individual being that has ever been created that has the ability to back up such audacity. Only the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords can say, everything from my mouth will benefit you in every situation and it will make you enough in every place. Church, the application of knowing that God's word is inspired by God means that God doesn't need you to defend it. If anyone ever says defend the Bible without using the Bible, that's like saying, hey, prove to me you're married by, by never showing me any evidence of your spouse. I mean, come on. It, that, it's a ridiculous thing. God doesn't need our defending. He asks for our following. And so in that, that's why we don't change the word of God. That's why God's word doesn't morph in every season. That's why God's word doesn't need readjusting in every situation. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4 and Revelation 22, God gives a warning to those who would dare twist or change his word. Because when we change the word of God, 
when we try to manipulate the word of God, then we are removing the holy from it and inserting the fallenness. And it is no longer authority. Church, the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is written by men. That's the second part of that. It's recorded by men. Go back to to chapter 6, verse 1 again, and just listen to, to what Scripture says. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded who? Me, to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to. What we see is that in this midst of this picture, what Moses is saying is, this is God's word, and he just asked me to write it down. In fact, he commanded me to write it down. Church, the world is, is pretty full of God showing that we have a choice without showing us we don't really have a choice. For instance, right, if your child were to hold their hand over a hot stove and you say, don't touch that. If you touch that, it's going to burn. If they touch it, it's going to burn. If they don't touch it, it won't burn. The choice is not the outcome. It's the obedience. You follow me in that? And, and if you're obedient, the outcome is good. If you're disobedient, the outcome is bad. When we look at Scripture, we see that Moses is saying, God told me to say this to you. If I don't say it just like he told me to say it, then I am defying the King of kings, the Lord of the lords, the ever-living God. And we already know the consequence of that. And so the men who got inspired to write this are simply vessels. They don't get to editorially document. They don't don't get to put in things. God used them in the way he created them to share the exact word that he wanted them to do because God did not share authorship. He just shared the avenues. If you were to look in your Bible and Hebrews chapter 1 this is what the the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 he says this long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed their heir of all things through whom also he created the world now 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 21 says this for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. You see, when someone says, well, if if someone wrote it, then it must be flawed. I've I've shared this story before, but but I remember that was the argument my logic teacher at at Texas A&M back in the day made against the Bible's fallibility. He, He... he got the book. I won't tell you who the author of your college professor's books are that cost $400 for 47 pages. But he said, do you believe this book is perfect? And we're like, no, probably not. You know, you, someone's probably typo in there somewhere. He's like, yeah, because somebody did it. So isn't it logical to believe that this book is imperfect because man was involved? Well, no. 
Because the author of this book was broken and fallen. The author of that book has the ability to ensure that men were just a vessel. And what Peter says, what the writer of Hebrews says, what the Old Testament records, what the New Testament records is this, is that any man who pins a word of God that is not the word of God, the consequences are eternal and they are condemning. And so we know by Scripture testifying of itself that the Bible was written by men, but men were simply the vessels that God chose in this season to transfer it through. The Bible is the inspired Word of God, is written by men, is preserved by the Spirit. Look in Deuteronomy 6, 2 through 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 2 through 5 continues this um, conversation that Moses is sharing. It's a one-sided conversation. He says that you may fear the Lord your God and you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them that it may go well with you that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Did any of that sound familiar to, to you, but not with an Old Testament reference? The, the Shema, this blessing, it was uttered by Jesus. Every Jew, it became this, this part of a prayer, like as a reminder, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might. You see, the preservation of Scripture by the Holy Spirit is like the worst hidden treasure in the Bible. And what I mean by that is it's poorly hidden. The evidence of God preserving it is incredible. I mean, I mean think about this. In Scripture, however you want to kind of do the math in it, the word promise is stated over 200 times in Scripture. You know what that means? That means we have 200 opportunities to fact-check reality since it's been written. Now, here's the thing, not just the word promise, but if we look at every promise God made, not including or going beyond when he said, I promise, when he says, I will, or I will carry you, or I've said it to be so, you would find, again, over 3,000 references in Scripture. And I'm saying 3,000 because that's the most conservative answer out there. As you walk through the Bible and the repetitions of promises over and over again, you can find 5,000, some will even say 7,000 times. Listen, in, in a book that records all of this information, to find that many ways before something happens to say, test me and see if I don't prove my word will endure. God says, if, if you want to fact check if I have preserved this differently than men preserve things, then go for it. We make a big deal about guys like Nostradamus who made thousands of false claims that never happened and got one kind of right. 
Scripture says is that's garbage. He should, he's already dead. Only the Spirit of the living God inspiring men to write the words of God can make sure that every promise, every statement comes to pass. And if you look in the Old Testament, they begin being fulfilled in Christ over and over and over again. We see them filled in God's people over and over again. And in the New Testament, the ones that haven't been fulfilled yet have not come to be proven false, but they are a reason for hope of what is yet to come. The word of God's inspiration is God saying over and over and over, let me bring it to the surface. The scripture doesn't record big fish stories, right? A, a big fish story is this. I went out, Connor and I went fishing um, when he was about seven years old and uh, we won. He caught the most fish, 34 fish. Come on now, 34 fish. I think we actually only caught four fish eight or nine times each because their poor lips were torn up. But listen, we caught 34 fish. And you want to know how big those fish were? I mean, it was amazing. Um, it, was, it was awesome. It's amazing how the further we get away from something, the less opportunities there are to fact check it, the more incredible the story comes, right? Men, we do that when we take the trash outside. You won't believe it, honey. Like five guys drive by shootings, but I wasn't letting you down. Right? We, we, we embellish. God's word has so many promises and so many places where only the Holy Spirit of the living God could have made sure they endured. There were times when it was forgotten and the Spirit brought it to remembrance. There were times when it was lost and God made sure it was found. Jesus reminds us that was his Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. This was not a new truth, but it was a proven reality that the perseverance of the saints happens because the preservation of the word by the Spirit. Why do, what do we believe about the Bible? This is why it's holy. We believe that the Bible is embraced by the people of God. Look at with me in verse 6 through 8. He says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You will teach them diligently to your, to your children. You will talk of them when you sit down in your house. You will walk of them uh, uh, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, when you bind them as a sign on your hand, they shall be as frontlets uh, between your eyes. Just, just pause here for a second. If you have a child in your house and you're saying, how do I disciple my children? How, how, how do I do this? If, if you're wondering, if you're a husband and you're trying to lead your wife, if you're a wife and you're trying to show him the beauty and the fragrance of the Holy Spirit and you're saying how do I disciple someone the word of God is very clear be diligent about it talk about him when you sit down talk about it when you're on a walk talk about it when you're lying in bed talk about it when you rise up make it obvious on your mind let the word of God be in your hands that's how you do it church what a loving gift God says, my word inspired, recorded, and persevered 
is to be woven into my people's life because they know who is speaking, they know the value of my word, and they are grateful for the reception of it. We use the word embracing God's word as the very first part of our vision action points. And the word embrace means to emphatically, excuse me, to willingly and enthusiastically accept. If you belong to Jesus Christ, th then the word of God should be the most precious recording out there, more valuable than the notes you shared with your wife in high school, more important than the love letters your children write to you, more incredible than the gifts you get for college, more valuable than the first house that you buy. The word of God woven into your life is proof of its embracement and its love by you. In Acts 17, the Bereans proved this. It says this, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What makes someone noble? They received the word of God with eagerness, examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Church, the Shema to a Jewish man or woman, even in the time of Christ and even today, it weaves together two things. That to love God, then you will, if you love God, then you will reveal it through joyful obedience. If you love God, it will be revealed in joyful obedience. You say, well, that doesn't sound like love. If I have to be in joyful obedience to someone, think about it on broken terms. I was challenged by a family member years ago about this thought. Like God seems cruel to demand obedience to prove love. And, and I said, let me ask you, my, my family member had just been married, and I said, if your wife was unfaithful to you multiple times over and over again and kept coming back, and then finally one night you write her a letter, and the letter says this, I love you with all that I am, but you and I are worth more than what you're doing. And so I want you to remain my wife forever. I want you to sleep in my bed. I want to spoil you by making you breakfast in the morning. I want to show my children how, how incredible you are. And this is what I ask, that for the rest of your life, you find yourself joyfully committed to me alone. Is that cruel? No way. And the joyful obedience to my marriage covenant isn't a burden, but it's still a command. The people of a God, we reveal our love for God and our faithful and joyful obedience to him. That would have been true now then, it is true now. And all of it points to the Son of God. There, there are two places, and I'll, I'll walk you through this, is, is one, well, we see that. We, we, we've read the scripture. If you go to verse 9, you can kind of follow down here uh, a little bit with me. It says, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. And when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you, with the great and good cities that you did not build. Now, listen close. Listen close. 
when you come into the land and the Lord welcomes you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, is the Lord your God whom you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst, and he is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Here's what I want you to know. The word of God, inspired by God, written by men of God, preserved by the spirit of God, embraced by the people of God, points to the son of God. In this passage, in two ways, I just want to show it to you. This is why knowing God's word is so wonderful. If, if you were to go back to the, just the, the thought of parents and children, uh, verse 8, chapter 6, you shall bind them as a sign on your, on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. Right? The, the, the reality is there's to be in your thoughts and there to be in your actions. All the things of God should be bound right here and they should be bound right here. And the enemy knows that in Revelations uh, chapter 24. Excuse me, chapter 13. What does the enemy do in the mark of the beast? He says, I want my name here, not his. And I want my name here, not his. If you go to chapter 22 of revelation you would see that jesus says i want my name here you see the enemy who wants to imitate christ and deceive the world knows that this thought was pointing to us having christ here and here consuming all that we are and he wants to imitate it but jesus says not at all it's about me we could go into verse uh, 9, verse 10, excuse me. And when the Lord your God brings you to the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham. Just pause right here. If we go back to this idea of the land, we, we tie Deuteronomy to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, God told uh, to Abram, go from your country to your, to your kin and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors I will curse and all the families of the earth through you they'll be blessed the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 would say this that Abraham for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and building is God's. Abraham knew when God was talking about calling him to this place that it was bigger than just a spot on the face of the earth, that it was bigger than just this. He, he just knew that what God had in store was more than a plot of land. It was a blessing beyond what he could imagine, think, or see of. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, God gives us through a man who's written, appearing an insight into Moses' mind, to Abraham mind saying no no what he was thinking of was the city whose designer was God and, and you see God kind of getting that taste going what would a city that's designed by God be like well let me give you a broken picture of it they would be good cities that you don't build they would be houses full of things that you didn't put in there there will be cisterns full of water living water maybe we would say that you don't dig there will be things to eat from that you don't plant. 
and they'll make you full. That's a broken picture in the promised land of what God would say, and, and God would say it's pointing even to something greater. What is the foundation for what God will build his city on? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus has just asked Peter a question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the fulfillment, the son of God. And this is what our Lord Jesus says. I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, on the statement, on the truth of what you just said. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Church, as you flip through the pages of Scripture over and over and over again, it points to Jesus. The, the Garden of Eden wasn't ever going to be our landing place. God had something better. It, 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 when, when the enemy came and deceived Adam and Eve, what the Bible said is this, is that the prophecy is that there will come a day where the Son of Man crushes the enemy. Church, in the big picture of Scripture, what does it mean and what do we have? The Bible is the inspired Word of God. It was written by men, not authored, but written. And the Holy Spirit of the living God has preserved it because the, the authority of the living God is able to do that. It is embraced by the people of God and all of it points not to me and you, but to Jesus. This morning, I don't know what your confession is. I don't know where you are, but I am telling you, you and I are in, unable, we're inadequate to do that. But there is one who has made a way because in his prophesying, in his promising, God has given us Jesus, able to fulfill what we cannot and invite us into what we can't have on our own. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if you want to know more, if God's been putting that on your heart during our time of response, lay it out before him. And during that time, if it's praying at the altar, meeting with a staff member, a deacon, or, or speaking to someone in the Connection Center afterwards, I want you to know the words in this book between these two leather bindings are certainly sure and hold the key to life. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. Now, Lord, as we look into your word, Lord, we understand that men and women are insufficient to do the things that your word claims it does. And so, Father God, I just ask today that we would know in whom we believe and what we believe. So, Lord Jesus, if there is any man or woman in this room that has not dreamt of what life could really be been like, Lord, would you allow your Holy Spirit to spark their imagination now? Would you allow them to taste and see how good and faithful a tree you are? God, we love you in Jesus' name.